We're very thankful to be here with you this morning. I was supposed to be here on the Sunday of your last annual meeting and had to call Brother Kenny that Saturday before and tell him that I was coming down with something, which ended up being the COVID. And so thankful I didn't try to come. I was tempted to force myself and come on, but I'm thankful that I didn't, didn't expose you to that. Right on the end of me getting over the COVID, uh, we lost my dad on August the 6th, and then on November 5th, I lost my beloved wife. I think many of us would say 2020 was a very difficult year. I certainly would say that myself, one of the most difficult years that I've been through. And yet in all of that, we would say that God is faithful and God has sustained us and we all continue to this day. And I am very thankful to get to be with you and to see many of you that I haven't seen in a while. And we thank the Lord. I trust that you'll be prayerful as I stand before you today. I've had many different and various thoughts about what I might try to speak on this morning. And I do pray that the Lord would bless it to be an encouragement to you today. I feel like all of us need encouragement time and time again, and certainly the Word of God does that for us. It gives us a great deal of encouragement. I trust that it would be something that would be very relevant to you in your life and in the times in which we live. We do live in difficult times, and I know that each one of us has our own personal trials and troubles. I read one time of a pastor that he concluded every service by telling his congregation, just remember that everyone you meet is carrying a heavy burden. And I believe that that is something that is true, that everyone here in one way or another that you're facing difficulties in your life, you're facing troubles and trials and temptations, and we have to live with our own failures in that, and we recognize that we all have them, that we all struggle day by day, and we are troubled, no doubt, about our nation and the state of our nation. And I pray the Lord would bless me that the things that I bring to you here this morning would be relevant to all of that. I thought about just giving tidbits here and there of those things that have encouraged me over the last many years, but I trust the Lord has led me in a direction that I think is always relevant and always encouraging, and that is just to preach Jesus Christ. And I think that always as we preach, that we are to be preaching Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 4 and verse 5, Paul said, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for his sake. And we always want to preach him regardless of what message we may be bringing, I believe that it's very important for us to be hearing all of the counsel of God and that we preach the entirety of the Word of God. But all of it is a testimony to Jesus Christ, whether it's the Old Testament or whether it's the New Testament, that we preach Jesus Christ. Whether we preach on the doctrinal things and the doctrine of grace that we, I trust, all love to hear, and whatever particular doctrine of that we may preach, whether it be election or predestination or justification or glorification or any others that we might name today, all of those 
are preached in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ. All of that is in him. And if we preach on the church, we preach on Jesus Christ. It's his church. He's the head of it. He's the one that has put the ordinances in it. He's the one that has given us the gospel that we proclaim in it today, that has given us the commands. He is the head of the church. He is the Lord of all. He has given us those commandments. And if we preach on practical things today, then we are preaching Jesus Christ because he's the Lord. He's the head of the church. And this morning, I want to preach on Jesus Christ, and I want to do it by using words that start with the letter S today and touch on several of those. I don't know how many I'll get to, and I'm sure that I don't know how many there are. I've counted about 12 that I would like to get to today. Now, I don't know how far along we'll get with that. I trust the Lord will just bless me to, to bring that which would be most needful and helpful to us here this morning. I want to begin in 1 John, the fourth chapter, in verse 14. John says, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. John was, I think, dealing with some error that had been advocated back in his day. It was the falsehood, the heresy that led on into what was called Gnosticism later on. But among the things that they were denying was things about the person of Christ. Some of them denied his humanity. Some of them denied his deity. And John was writing his letter to refute that. He wanted everybody to know that we've, we've known him. We walked with him. We talked with him. We touched him. We know him. And he tells us here that we have seen and do testify. He said, I've, I've seen him. Here at the time that he wrote this, John was probably the only living apostle at that time. He was one that had personal knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had heard his teaching. He had seen him in the flesh. He had been one of those most closely associated with Jesus Christ in that very near intimate relationship. Not only was he one of the 12, but he was one of the three that oftentimes Jesus would call apart and they would witness things, him and Peter and James, that others did not. And he's telling us, we've seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. I'll just say this about that being the Savior of the world today, that we recognize the world, term, term world is used in a variety of ways in the Scripture. If we are familiar with the Bible, we know that it does not mean that he saved every person in the world because the Bible testifies to us that there will be those that go into everlasting punishment. It teaches us in Revelation, the fifth chapter and verse 9, that he has redeemed the people out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. Not all of every kindred, people, tongue, and nation, but out of them there are those that will not finally be saved by him. But he's referred to as the Savior of the world, and I believe one of the things that we see in that is this, that every person that is saved, that he is saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the only Savior that there ever will be. And we see him here, first of all, that the Father sent the Son. 
And that's the first thing that I would bring to your mind. Who was this one that the Father sent? He was the Son of God. Very important doctrinal point here that here's the second person of the Trinity that was sent into this world that he might save us from our sins. I had a, a good friend several years ago now. He was a Christian man, but he came into my office one day and he began to tell me that he did not think that Jesus was God, that he didn't see any necessity of him being God. And I told him at that time, I said, well, it's who he was that gave virtue to what he did. If it were not for the fact that he was the eternal son of God, what he did would not have had the virtue that it did have. It would not have had the merit that it had. How important for us to realize today that Jesus Christ is the son of God, the only begotten son of God, God manifest in the flesh. I'll admit it's a mystery that I cannot fully explain how that he's 100% God and he's 100% man, and yet that is what I believe today and I trust that you believe today that there is that one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, and yet he is the Son of God sent into this world, as he tells us here. We have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And so first of all, we see him that he is the Son. You might recall the occasion in Matthew, the 16th chapter, whenever Jesus asked some of his disciples, says, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, some say John the Baptist, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He says, but whom do you say that I am? And here was the answer that Peter gave for them. He said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was his confession at that time, and I trust that's your confession today. Is that your confession today, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God? If so, then I can pronounce a blessing upon you because Jesus said this to Peter, said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, isn't that a remarkable thing that the God that created the heaven and the earth that is sovereign over all, created the angels, created all the celestial beings, all the terrestrial beings, he created everything that's in this world that is infinitely above us, and yet he has made a revelation to you today if you confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's an amazing thing today. And that's how it is that we know and believe today that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, because God the Father hath revealed that unto us. So we see him, first of all, as the Son. We see him as the Savior, as this very text tells us here that we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. We're all familiar with the wonderful text there in Matthew 1 and verse 21. It's one of my favorite. Whenever the angel appears to Joseph, he's heard about his espoused wife, Mary, that she's with child. Now, you know, their, their espousals in that day, that that formed a legal marriage. He was legally married to her, but they had never come together. He had not known her as a husband knows the wife, and yet it's found he learned that she's with child. And he's struggling with that. He's wondering, what do I do about this? He was a just man, didn't want to make a public, public example to her. And the angel Lord comes and appears to him and say, says, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. 
And if you want to just boil down what we believe today in a nutshell, there it is. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. What does Jesus mean? It means Savior. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior. He said, you're going to call his name Jesus. He's going to be the Savior. He shall save his people from their sins. And I'm going to just hit these points and quickly go on to another one this morning. So get as many of them as I can. But he's the Son and he's the Savior. In Hebrews 7 and verse 22 says, By so much was Jesus made the surety of a better testament. You go back and you read the 7th chapter of Hebrews and you're going to see there he's teaching us about the Melchizedek priesthood and how superior that, that is to the old Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood. And he says, By so much is Jesus made the surety of a better testament. He shows how that his priesthood is superior to that of Levi. He's showing us there how that the New Testament is superior to that of the Old Testament. And he tells us that Jesus is the surety of that testament. He's the guarantee of that testament. In fact, back in Isaiah it says, I will give him as a covenant to, unto the people. That he is the testament or the covenant itself. Because he guarantees all the blessings of that new covenant. And I just uh, read these to you here very quickly here this morning as we think about this covenant in Hebrews the 8th chapter says for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days saith the Lord I will put my laws into their mind and I will write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people my friend he's the surety of that that God is our God that we are his people I, I remember reading this one time that Charles Spurgeon was preaching on this and I don't agree with everything Spurgeon said but he said a lot of good things and this was good. He said if you were to come and ask me today to explain that promise that I will be unto them a God and they shall be unto me a people. He said I think I'd ask you for a year to think on it and then said I think whenever you came to me after that year I'd ask you for ten more years to think on it and said I think after you came to me after 10 years and asked me to explain the fullness of that promise, I would tell you, you're going to have to wait till eternity for me to understand what all is embraced in that promise, that I will be unto them a God, and they shall be unto me a people. But what a great privilege that we have today, what a great blessing that we have today, that God has made us his people, and that he has pledged to be our God. And they shall... Not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities, will I remember no more. What a blessed thought that that is. That I know today that every one of us is guilty. The Bible testifies to it. My experience teaches me that. That we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and yet by the covenant promise because Jesus is the surety of the better testament we can rest assured today that their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. That God has said I'm not going to hold those against you because of what Jesus Christ the surety has done. In fact all of the blessings today that we have through the covenant of God that is pledged and promised to us they all come to us through his son the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it be our redemption, our justification, our sanctification, our regeneration, every one of those that come to us and it's guaranteed because Jesus Christ is the surety of that testament. 
And so he is our surety, and he is today our substitute. As he agreed as our surety to take our debts and our obligations upon himself, he came and he died as our substitute there upon the cross. He said in Matthew 20 and verse 28, For the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. That he gave his life a ransom in our place and in our stead. It was for our benefit, but it also was as a substitute. Even we remember that occasion whenever God revealed to Abraham that ram that was caught in a thicket when he had told him to offer up his son Isaac. And Abraham took and he offered that ram in the stead of Isaac. And we see there a picture of the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ was offered in our place and in our stead. And as our substitute, there as he went to the cross. Galatians 3 and verse 13 says that Christ also hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And so as our substitute, he went there to the cross, and he went there as the sin bearer. He uh, there upon the cross, he bore our sins. 1 Peter 2 and verse 24 says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body, on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness. There's the greatest incentive that we have today to live a righteous life, and that is to remember this, that our Lord Jesus Christ died for us there upon the tree of the cross. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, that we think of that, that Jesus died, he died for me. And what an incentive that we have today to live a righteous life for him, not in order for our salvation, but because of what he has done for us. He went there as the sin bearer. In Hebrews 9, and verse 27, 28, says it, For it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And so he is the sin bearer today. He is, he went to the cross and he bore our sins there in his own body upon the tree. He was the sacrifice that God required. <laughs> Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2, he says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love even as Christ has loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice for sin as a sweet-smelling savor unto the Lord. That our Lord Jesus Christ was that sacrifice that God required for our sin. And I love these verses here in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, as he speaks about that. He speaks about the fact that he came to do the will of God. And he says in verse 10, he says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We're sanctified by the offering of Jesus Christ once for all. He's contrasting it with all those sacrifices, multitudes of sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament times as they offered up their lambs and their goats and their calves and all these things, turtle doves, whatever it might have been, the various offerings that they made back then, but none of those ever put away sin. But here came the one sacrifice that all those were pointing forward to, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it did put away sin. 
and we are sanctified. By the which will we are sanctified. We're set apart through that offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He says, and every priest standeth daily ministering, offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. He's speaking there about the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament time, that they were offering those things, but they never took away sin. But this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. I'll tell you, it was a beautiful day to me when I saw the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would went through years of doubt. I would went through years of fear. And somehow I was always looking back to Ronnie Hedges. And I was thinking, am I doing this right? Am I doing that right? Do I believe strong enough? And it's a beautiful thing for me whenever I saw it. it didn't depend upon me. It depended upon what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. And that's what gives us merit today in the eyes of God. It's his merit. And it gives us access to God. He died upon the cross that he might bring us to God. And my friend, you and I today, even though we are sinners, we yet have the privilege to come unto God, to come to him this morning in worship, to come to him day by day in prayer to finally in glory to come into the presence of God and be glorified and made like Jesus. What a blessed thought that that is today, that he is our sin bearer. He is our substitute. He's all of these things for us today, and he is that sacrifice that put away sin through his suffering. 1 Peter 3 and verse 18, he says, For Christ hath also once suffered for sin." the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He died for us. He suffered for us. And we couldn't begin to tell all the sufferings of Christ today. We can think about those physical sufferings that he endured at the hands of men as they spit upon him and they slapped him and they scourged him and they took and they nailed him to the cross. They put the crown of thorns on his head and what awful suffering that he went through. What pain and what agony that he went through in that way. And yet beyond that was the suffering that he endured even at the hands of God as God poured out his wrath upon him. That wrath that was due to you and due to me. But he is our substitute. He endured it. He was our sin bearer. He was our sacrifice. And God poured that out upon him. And we cannot ever begin to describe the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he did it. And why did he do it? He did it for his great love for his people. And so we see him as that suffering servant that Isaiah had prophesied would come and that he did indeed come and died there upon the cross for us. And then as we think about him today, we think of him that as he offered himself, that he brought satisfaction to God. Here it was, that which would satisfy and appease God in his wrath towards us. Going back over here to 1 John, the fourth chapter, backing up a little bit, going to verse 9, he tells us, In this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. He is telling us here, 
how that God manifested that love. Now, in reality, he loved us from all eternity, even before we had an existence. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and in love he predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself. He had an eternal love for his people. And my friends, he manifested that love when he sent his son to die upon the cross. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that word, one of the ways we might describe that word propitiation is the satisfaction. That here is what satisfied God. Here is God offended by man, offended by the sin that he had committed. His, he, man had broken his law. And the law demanded that the curse be executed. It demanded that death be the penalty. And the Lord Jesus Christ came and he endured that curse. And he took our penalty upon himself, and he satisfied God. His law was magnified. His justice was satisfied. And we realize that today because that Jesus Christ came forth out of the grave. Romans 4 and verse 25, he says, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. And the fact that Jesus Christ came out of the grave, it is the guarantee to us that God is satisfied in that work that His Son, Jesus Christ, did upon the cross. But you know, it's also satisfying to us today as the children of God that we're satisfied. I trust that we are. At least we need to be. We should be. We can be today. That we can be satisfied with what Jesus Christ did there. I've mentioned my own doubts and fears. I heard one time about a pastor that had a particular young person that was just continually struggling with doubts and fears. They wanted to be saved and they would do whatever they thought they were supposed to be, but they weren't comfortable. They, they had their doubts, they had their fears, and finally this pastor said, I think one of the wisest things that I've ever heard outside of the scripture, but he said, you will never be satisfied until you're satisfied with what satisfied God. You'll never be satisfied until you're satisfied with what satisfied God. To realize that God is satisfied with the work of His Son. And Him being satisfied with the work of His Son, He's satisfied with all of those that Jesus died for. He shall save His people from their sins. And I will say to you today, that if you're among those that can confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you believe in Him because of that revelation that has been given to you, it is the evidence that you are one of those, one of His. He would tell us later over here in 1 John 5 and verse 10, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. John actually wrote this epistle that he might bring us to an assurance that we have eternal life. The very next verse, he says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. He would not be in repetitious there. He's writing to believers, and he's writing to 
assure them, telling them how that they might know that they have eternal life. And we could go through the evidences that John sets forth there in that book. I'm going to hit three of them real quickly here this morning. He does tell us in 1 John 2 and verse 29 that if you know that he is righteous, that is Christ, then you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. There's one of the evidences of one that has been born again. They do righteousness even as the Lord Jesus Christ was righteous. They don't do righteousness in order to be born of him. They do righteousness because they are born of him. Another one is right here in 1 John the fourth chapter, just above where we read a few moments ago, in verse 11, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God, if we love one another. He says, 1 John 3 and verse 14, By this we know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. Here's another evidence that we've been born of God, that is, that we love one another. And then 1 John 5 and verse 1, he says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. Excuse me. In other words, if we love God, we're going to love the children of God. That's just something that is natural with us today. He tells us in 1, John, 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, that you need not that any man write unto you, for yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And we are taught of God to love God. We are taught of God to love one another. He does go on and say, but I would that you increase and abound. And we want to cultivate that. And we should cultivate that and love one another. But these are evidences that we are the children of God, born of God, that we have eternal life. He said, these things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants us to have that assurance today. And so we can be satisfied with what God has done. And, you know, we, we, we find satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is that bread of life that feeds the hungry soul. He's that bread of life, the water of life that feeds and, and quenches the thirst of the thirsty soul. He is that one that can satisfy us in all of our needs. In fact, if we look at, we see him in the, in the satisfaction, we see the sufficiency that is there in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've mentioned to you some of the troubles that I've had in my life, some of the afflictions and trials that I've gone through. Most of you know about this. Uh, about 15 years ago, my wife began to show signs of dementia, and we just faced that day by day after, after that, losing a piece of her at a time. For about 35 years, we had been married. We, uh, when we were young, we met up at Tarleton where I was going to college. We met in August. In October, we were engaged. We got married December the 19th, and had she lived till December the 19th, we'd have been married 50 years. For about 35 years of that, I had as good a marriage as anyone I've ever known. And then things began to change. It got hard for a little while. Just due to her illness and disease, well, she got kind of aggressive and violent and got to where she was mad at me all the time. There was times she would rail on me for even hours at a time. When I first began to see the direction everything was going, I knew I didn't have the strength for it. I knew I wasn't sufficient for that. 
I got down on my knees and I asked God to help me. Give me the love for her that I could be a caregiver. I'm not a natural caregiver by any means. But somehow the Lord gave me that love and God gave me that strength. And I was able to do that. It wasn't always easy. But I will tell you today that his grace is sufficient. That's something that he showed me over and over and over again during those years. And even as we come to the time that I lost her and as I'm struggling on now, his grace is sufficient. You might remember the words of Paul there in 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. He had that thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. He prayed three times that it might be removed. You remember that. And God answered his prayer. But he didn't answer it in the way that Paul had wanted it. I prayed time and time and time again for the healing of Gloria. And God answered that prayer. He didn't do it in the way that I intended, but she's healed now, and she's with him now, and she is healed. But here was the answer that he gave to Paul when he wanted that thorn in the flesh removed. Here in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9, he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And Paul recognized that when he was weak, that then he was strong. And he saw that God's grace was sufficient. You remember whenever God would say unto Abraham, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. That means I am the all-sufficient God. And so we see Jesus Christ today that he is sufficient for us in every circumstance of life he's sufficient to supply us and to supply our need he's our shepherd psalm 23 verse 1 the lord is my shepherd and i shall not want what a great statement of faith that that is but to recognize today that he is our shepherd, 1 Peter 2 and verse 23 says, For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and the bishop of your soul. My friend, he's brought us to himself. He's drawn us to himself, and he is our shepherd. He's taken ownership of us, and he watches over us, and he cares for us. That shepherd, he would guide the sheep. He'd provide for the sheep. He'd protect the sheep. And you notice what? David said there, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. What a great statement of faith that that is today. That he says, I'll not want. In other words, I'm going to trust him to just supply everything that I need and it's going to be sufficient for me. And so it is. That's something not easy to learn. But it's something that can be learned. You remember today the words of the Apostle Paul, Philippians 4 and verse 13. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I'm sure that every one of us can quote that today. But do you realize the context leading up to that statement? I'm going to go back and read it to you here in Philippians, the fourth chapter. It was an occasion whenever the church at Philippi, they had sent a gift, a monetary gift, to the Apostle Paul as he was ministering. And he was rejoicing in that. He was thanking them for that. He says in, in chapter 
4 and verse 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Said you were always concerned about me. I recognize that. You had not had the opportunity, but now you have. You've done it. He'll later say that was fruit that abounded to your account. He was grateful for that. But he says in verse 11, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He said, not that I wanted anything, said, I appreciate what you've sent. It met a need, but said, I wasn't in want. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. He said, we go through these various situations in life. And he said, I'm content. I've learned in all these different things to be content in whatsoever state I am. And he says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And we can today be content in our circumstances in life. Some of them are difficult. Life is hard. We were talking about that a little bit earlier today. We go through some hard times in life. Job said, man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of troubles. But I'll tell you today that whatever troubles that we're facing, that he is sufficient. He is sufficient to help us through it. He is sufficient to give us strength. He is sufficient to provide for us. He is sufficient to protect us. He is sufficient for us today. He is our portion here in this world. And he is a sufficient Savior. He's sufficient for the trials of life. He's sufficient as we come to that time of death and we face that last final crisis in our life that we're going to have to all face unless the Lord Jesus comes first. I've mentioned the death of my father, the death of my wife. My mother just got out of the hospital last week. We had a couple of days there. We didn't think that she was going to make it, but you know, she just said over and over again, it's okay either way. She's ready. And I trust that every one of us is ready to face that. There's the great trial of faith when we come to that time that we must pass over out of this time world and into eternity. But may I say to you today that the very same shepherd that has watched over you here in this world, that he's going to be there for us at that time to take us on over and we can be satisfied in him. And you know that ultimately in eternity that we're going to be satisfied David said this in Psalm 17 and verse 15, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I wake with thy likeness. What a time that that will be. Whenever we finally are made like unto our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you look forward to that day and long for it? Don't you look forward to the time when you're going to be able to worship God in the way that you've always wanted to? When you're not hindered in any way by the infirmities of this body, by the distractions of this world, or by that sinfulness that yet is within us today. I have to say with Paul that when I would do good, evil is present with me. And I recognize that everything that I do, that it is defiled by sin, whether it's prayer, whether it's preaching, whatever I do today, that there's always something there that's not exactly the way it ought to be. But there's coming a time when it's going to be. 
When we're going to be made right, we're going to be made holy, we're going to be made just, we're going to be made immortal, we're going to be made incorruptible, we're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and we'll be satisfied. I can't tell you everything about that other world, but I can tell you this, we're going to be satisfied then, more satisfied than we've ever been before. And this one that is all these things that we've tried to bring before you here today, He's also the sovereign now. Our Lord Jesus Christ, no longer a baby in a manger. He's no longer hanging on a cross. He's no longer in a tomb. He's resurrected and he's gone back to glory. And he's now at the right hand of God. He said that all power is given unto me. And he is there at the right hand of God, henceforth expecting until his enemies be made his footstool. And I'll just close here with this in 1 Timothy the sixth chapter. I'm going to begin with verse 13. It says, I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. Paul has given Timothy, a young minister, a charge here. And he brings to his mind the Lord Jesus Christ, who when he was before Pontius Pilate, he witnessed a good confession. He said that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I will say to you today that even as his first coming, his death is a great incentive unto us to be faithful to him and to live a righteous life before him. The second coming is also used in that way that we ought to be living in a way that we're ready for his appearing. He said that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting Amen. And so he is the sovereign today, and he's in heaven. And may we always remember that. As we look at this world, sometimes we think it's out of control. No, my friends, it's under his control. He's on the right hand of God, henceforth expecting, till his enemies be made his footstool. And one day, he's going to show who is that blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ the one that died for me and showed his love for me in that death. May he add his blessing today. Thank you.